I'm Pastor Michael, and um, we are doing a sermon series on the book of Deuteronomy. And right at the start of the book, Moses goes back to this event that had happened 40 years prior, which is uh, recorded for us also in Numbers 13 and 14, which is this story of the spies going into Canaan and Israel's refusal to enter the land. And why does Moses focus on this story, right? Of all the stories in the wilderness, why does he begin his sermon by by looking at this one story? In fact, it's the only story in the wilderness that he cites. And the answer is because This is the foundational sin of Israel. This is Israel's original sin, so to speak, that condemned the first generation out of Egypt to perish in the wilderness. Because remember, Moses is addressing now the second generation, the children of the Exodus. And if the second generation is is to enter the promised land, if they are to live faithful lives of obedience in the land, they have to understand what had happened in the wilderness. And and because the same thing is inside of them. You'll notice um, as we read the text, Moses' curious use of the pronoun you. He says, you did this, you didn't listen, you rebelled. But of course, he's addressing the second generation who were only children at the time, uh, many of whom weren't even born when this event happened. So why doesn't he say, your parents did this? Instead, he says, you did this. And the reason is because this story is a picture of the human condition. This is this story is, is a key to understanding ourselves and understanding God. And so with that in mind, let's read the text. This is Deuteronomy chapter 1. I'll read to you starting uh, in verse 19. We'll read all the way to verse 33. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites. The Amorites is um, one of the seven peoples of people groups of uh, the Canaanites but they're often used as to refer to all the Canaanites, okay? Which is the way it's being used here. On the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and take possession As the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you, do not fear or be be dismayed. Then all of you came near me and said, let us send men before us that that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me, and I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe, And they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshkol and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Yet you would not go up 
but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our, bro- our brothers have, have made our hearts melt, saying, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God, who goes before you, will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son, all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. This is the word of God. So I have two points. First, we're going to look at the rebellion in the wilderness. And then secondly, we're going to look at the son of God. So we're going to look at the sin and then we're going to look at the cure of the sin. So let's begin. Number one. Let's look at the story. So the people of Israel leave Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai, and they trek through the Sinai wilderness, which Moses calls that, ter- that great and terrifying wilderness. And they travel a distance of about 100 miles, uh, which we know from the previous passage took them exactly 11 days to cross about nine miles per day. It's a very reasonable pace. And they arrive at Kadesh Barnea, which is this very large oasis on the southern border of Canaan with abundant springs and pastures. And it must have been a wonderful rest for the people after this difficult journey. And at Kadesh Barnea, the people are on the cusp of entering the promised land. This is the land that God had promised Abraham and his descendants And listen to the way Moses puts it in verse 21. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go and take possession of it so that God has already provided the land. The people only need to go and take it. But the people say, "Mm, let's send in spies first. Now, this proposal by itself is not wrong. In fact, it's quite smart strategically so that you can make plans, you can prepare. In fact, um, Joshua sends spies before he attacks Jericho. But you can detect a kind of wavering in this plan, right? Let's see how difficult it really is. So the spies are sent and they return. And their report confirms everything that God had promised about the land. The land is rich and fertile. Um, They go to this place called the Valley of Eshkol. Eshkol literally means bunches of grapes. And in Numbers 13, it tells us that the spies cut off a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And it's so heavy. It's so enormous. It takes two spies, two men to carry uh, the grapes back to camp so that this is a lush and prosperous 
land just as God has promised. But the spies report that the Canaanites are too strong. And again, they're called Amorites here. The spies say the Amorites are too strong. They have a much larger population. They're militarily superior. They, they're in these fortified positions. The spies conclude the land cannot be conquered. Now, what is interesting and I think what is really revealing is how the people respond. Because it's one thing to despair. It's, you know, one thing to be overwhelmed by the difficulty of it all. But what happens is that the people turn on God and they accuse him of evil motives. Look with me to verse 27. Verse 27 is really the key to this entire passage. In verse 27, the people say, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Notice that everything is in reverse. In spite of all the evidence of God's love, in spite of his mighty deliverance out of Egypt, his provision in the wilderness, manna literally (laughs) rained down from heaven every day, water from the rock, sign after sign of God's care and provision. The people say, God does not love us, he hates us. He will not give the Amorites into our hand, but he will give us into the hand of our enemies. He has not brought us to Canaan that we might have new life, but he has brought us to this exact spot so that he can destroy us. He can annihilate us. There's a reason this story appears over and over again in the Bible. It is brought up repeatedly in the prophets, in the Psalms. It is discussed at length in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, in Hebrews, because this is a paradigm event. This is a paradigm event, not just in the history of Israel, but in the history of the whole human race. Because what this story shows us is what is wrong with the human heart. And what is fundamentally wrong with the human heart is that we don't trust God. We don't believe that he loves us. We don't believe that he has our best interest in mind. In spite of everything that he has done for us, we believe he's against us and in fact, he hates us. This is why in the story, the people exaggerate the danger. If you look at the text closely, you'll notice that the language here is just way over the top. The spies report, the cities are fortified up to the heavens. Really? Is that actually possible for the city walls to be that high? The spies say the sons of, the, of Anakim are there. Do you guys know who the Anakim are? They are a legendary, mythical race of giants. So the land is populated by enormous human beings. Why do the spies exaggerate? You exaggerate to make God look cruel and unreasonable because what was fundamentally driving their refusal to enter the land is that they did not trust God. 
And it's important here to notice the parallel to the sin in the garden. Because the sin in the Garden of Eden and the sin at Kadesh Barnea, they are both foundational events. Because in both stories, you see the same exaggeration and you see the the same attack on the character and on the goodness of God. Because remember, in the garden, the serpent said, did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Right? All the trees are forbidden to you, not just one tree. That seems really unreasonable. And then remember, Satan said, I know God said if you eat of this tree, you will die, but you're not really going to die. It's all a ruse. God knows if you eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him. And therefore, don't you see, he's trying to hold you down. You can't really trust him. And when Adam and Eve believed that lie, despite everything that God had done for them, the whole human race fell. And it poisoned everything. Everything. Because all healthy relationships, listen to me, all healthy relationships are built on a foundation of trust. You can't really have a relationship with someone unless you trust them. Because if you don't trust someone, you're always going to be on guard with that person. You're always going to be afraid of that person. You're always going to have to protect yourself with that person. Now, maybe in some kind of limited way, you might be able to work with that person, but you're always going to have to watch your back. And you're never going to be able to let yourself be vulnerable to them because they may betray you. This is true of all relationships, but this is especially true of the most uh, fundamental core relationships in your life. The relationship between parent and child, the relationship between husband and wife. If trust, listen to me, if trust is lost or broken in those core relationships, then everything falls apart. Then your whole life will be full of fear and dread. You'll be constantly stressed. You'll be constantly afraid. And it'll distort everything else in your life. And all kinds of problems will appear in your life as a result. Now listen, if that is true of the foundational relationships in your life, how much more true is it of the most foundational relationship of all, which is your relationship with God? If you don't trust God, if you're not sure His decrees and commandments are for your good, then the rest of your life is going to be distorted and broken. This is what the Bible calls sin. And you're going to go out into this world wounded and limping and afraid and and your life is going to be you know caved in and self-absorbed this is the engine that drives all of our disobedience and rebellion this is why we grasp and hoard onto money and we can't be as radically generous as the bible commands us to be because We're not sure we can trust God to protect us, to provide for us. 
This is why we don't obey God when it comes to our sex lives, because we are afraid that if we obey, we are going to miss out on happiness and fulfillment. This is why we overwork. This is why we lie and pretend. This is why when no one is looking, we steal. Because fundamentally, we don't trust God. We're not sure He really loves us. This is the root of all sin. This is the sin behind all other sins in your life. And this is what is wrong with the human race. This is what is wrong. Now, before I go to the second point, there's one more thing I want to show you. This sin manifests itself in our text through grumbling. I think this story is so psychologically rich, and if we had the time, we would do a deep dive into each verse. But look again at verse 27. Moses says, And you murmured in your tents. The word murmur there is the Hebrew word ragan. In other translations, it is rendered to complain or to grumble. It literally means to whisper against. So this was not open rebellion. This was not the people marching up to Moses to level a direct charge. But the people were hiding in their tents and they were whispering against Moses and against God. And it's very subtle, right? It's not open defiance, but it's a kind of muttering under the breath. This is so unfair, right? We've all experienced it, especially parents. And we all hate it because it is absolutely poison. It's this spirit of malcontentment. It is the opposite of gratitude and joyful obedience. And it is wicked And it is a sin. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or complaining so that you may be blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and perverse generation. Now listen to me. Grumbling is not the same thing as groaning. You know, there's a lot of groaning in the Bible. So, for example, Psalm 38, verse 8. Listen, I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Or listen to Romans 8, 23. All creation groans as we await the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So, groaning is a godly response to a broken world. Groaning says to God, I'm in pain. This is really hard. Please help me. But grumbling says to God, this is your fault. This isn't fair. You must be against me. Now, it may seem like a small and subtle sin. You know, complaining, muttering under your breath. Don't we all do it? But listen, if you give in to it, if you nourish the the bitterness And the self-pity, if you give vent to it, it will grow. And it will be this poison in your soul, and it will infect everything. And you'll be miserable, and you will hate God. 
This is the sin that kept Israel from the promised land. And so they perished in the wilderness. Their corpses were lying, were left lying in the desert. And so let this be a warning to us all. Let this be a warning. This leads me to my second point. So what is the answer? What is the solution? And the answer, of course, is faith. The people should have responded with faith. Listen to what Moses says in verse 29. Do not be in dread or afraid of them. Now, when those two words are stacked together like that in the Hebrew, it means don't be overcome by fear. Don't be overwhelmed by your your fears because... Fear by itself is not wrong. Fear is a very rational response to danger. In fact, if you're not afraid when you should be afraid, it's going to lead to reckless and foolish behavior. The problem is when you are controlled by your fears. The problem is when fear... Let me wait. The problem is when you are controlled by your fears. The problem is when you let your fears prevent you from doing what is good and what is right so that you are discounting the power of God. This is why in the Bible, fear is opposed to faith. And the call to faith is therefore a call to take courage in the face of danger. So for example, in Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, God comes to Joshua He's right about to attack the city of Jericho with its formidable walls. And in Joshua 1.9, God says this, listen. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed. Again, those two words stacked. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Or listen to Hebrews 13.6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear, for what can man do to me? Now, when we look at our story, you know, the spies were not completely wrong. The people were facing a formidable enemy. Militarily speaking, the odds were not looking good. But of course, the people were forgetting God. And this is the argument Moses makes in verse 30. He says, did not God Fight for you in Egypt when the chariots of Pharaoh were bearing down on you. Did he not sweep them away under the waters? And so the people's response should have been like David before Goliath. Do you guys remember that story? This little boy facing off against a giant, an actual literal giant. And I love the way, uh, I love what he says right before the battle. He says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And so the people should have responded like that. But they did not. And so they perished in the wilderness. And for the rest of the time, I want to look at this question. Where does faith in God come from? Where does courage come from? And the key, the answer, is verse 31. I want you to know that verse 31 is truly, I think, one of the most beautiful verses 
in all of the Bible. And I want to show you today that it is the nexus, it is the crossroads that connects so many other passages in the Bible. Let me read to you verse 31. This is actually in the middle of Moses' argument to the people. He says, And in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son, all the way that you went until you came to this place. So the first thing Moses reminds Israel is that as a people, they have this special status as the son of God. And it goes back to Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Exodus 4, 22 is a very important verse where, let me pause for the plane. That's my second allowance. I won't do it again. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn son. And the reason why it's such an important verse, it's the first time that Israel is called God's son, is because it shows us how the people are to relate to God. Not just as creatures relate to the Creator, not just as subjects relate to their king, but as a son relates to his father. Do you understand? This is a father-son relationship. And therefore, the people's relationship to God is marked by intimacy and love. Look at the imagery in verse 31. The Lord God carried you as a man carries his son. And so imagine, right? Think about this little child who collapses in the desert from the heat, from the thirst, and his father tenderly picks him up and carries him safely home. It's a picture of God's fatherly love for his people. Now, I want you to know there's a paradox here. And the paradox here is this. Does this help us to obey God? The answer is no. It only compounds our guilt. I know I said number two, but let me wait. I feel like the fire truck was unplanned, so I get a third one. Let me backtrack a little bit, the logic, okay? The paradox is this. Does this help us to obey God? And the answer is no. It only compounds our guilt. Because it's one thing for subjects to rebel against the king. It's one thing for creatures to raise their fist in defiance against the creator. But let me tell you, there is something especially wicked in betraying familial love. A couple of weeks ago, I heard an interview on NPR in which they were interviewing um, Yoon Yoo Jung. Yoon Yoo Jung is an actress. She actually just won the Academy Award for her role in the film Minari. 
And in the interview, she tells this really touching story that moved me about her childhood and the story of her great-grandmother. What happened is that Yun, um, she grew up in the years immediately after the Korean War, which was a time of national crisis and poverty. Actually, my parents grew up in that exact same time period, and they would tell me stories of just intense poverty on a nationwide level where food was scarce, even water was rationed, and daily survival was just very hard, very hard. And Yun says that her great-grandmother wanted to preserve for the family this their precious allotment of water. So the great-grandmother would reuse the same bowl of dirty water for her personal use and, and hygiene, and she would just use it over and over again without replenishing it. And Yun says that as a nine-year-old girl, she was repulsed by the smell and the dirtiness of her great-grandmother, and she would avoid contact with her and show disrespect because she was disgusting. Many years later, when Yun was getting older, she suddenly remembered her great-grandmother, and she was stricken with this memory of how stupid and arrogant, I mean, and ignorant and, um, and ungrateful she had been. And she remembered how her great-grandmother would always claim that she was not hungry, and she would skip lunch every day. And then she died when Yun was only nine years old. And so she says she remembers how her great-grandmother sacrificed her food and water to save her family. And she realized, therefore, how much her great-grandmother truly loved her. Truly loved her. Do you understand? When you fail to acknowledge God's care and provision in your life, you're not just being forgetful. You're not just being thoughtless. It's wicked. Because you're betraying familial love. So where does that put us? God loves us as a father loves his own son. That doesn't help us. That only condemns us. That only compounds our guilt. So what is the answer? Centuries later in the New Testament, we're given this story of Jesus' family fleeing from the murderous rage of Herod. And what they do is they go down to Egypt as refugees. And in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, commenting on the story, this is what it says. Listen to this verse. This was to fulfill what God had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, the prophet here is the prophet Hosea. And the quote comes from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Let me read you the whole verse. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And if you read the rest of the passage, it goes on with this extended metaphor of how God 
raised up Israel as a child, how he would teach him how to walk, and is talking about this parent-child relationship between God and Israel. Again, going back to Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, this very foundational verse. But in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, all of that, all of this language is applied now to Jesus. And suddenly, everything snaps into place. Because now we understand Jesus is the unique and true Son of God. And from all of eternity, in the Trinity, you have the Father, you have the Son, you have the Holy Spirit. And in John chapter 1, verse 18, which is my favorite verse, in John 1.18, Jesus gives us a glimpse of the inner life of the Trinity. And this is what he says in John 1.18. If you've been around, you've heard me quote this many times. Jesus says, The Son is in the bosom of the Father. The Son is in the bosom of the Father. Do you know what the bosom is? The bosom is the breast. It's, it's the chest area. And it's this picture of the Son laying down his head on the bosom of his Father. That is who God is. From all of eternity, the Son is lying on the head of the bosom of his Father. It's this picture of incredible, infinite, of intimacy and love. And then God has the audacity to extend that relationship to Israel. Out of Egypt, I called my Son. But what happens in the story in the wilderness is that Israel fails to act as a son. And instead, he acts like the prodigal son in the parable. And he casts, and just like the prodigal son, he casts off the rules of the father. He flees from the father's love and care. And therefore, don't you see, Israel deserves banishment and death because he has rejected the father. But do you remember in Jesus' parable in Luke 15, there is another son, the elder son. Now in the parable, the elder son is a wicked son. He refuses to go after his younger brother. And when the younger brother comes back home, he begrudges him mercy and forgiveness. But don't you see, Jesus is the true elder son. Hebrews 2.11 says, He is our elder brother. And unlike the elder brother in the parable, Jesus goes after Israel. And he takes on human flesh because he came to stand in Israel's place. That's why he had to go down to Egypt, not just to flee, not just to escape from Herod, but to retrace Israel's steps. And like Israel... He goes into the wilderness. And like Israel, he is put to the test. And did you know that every time Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness, every time Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, every single time he's tempted, Jesus is just quoting, he's just reciting Deuteronomy. What does that mean? Here is the gospel. Israel failed 
to live as the Son of God. But Jesus Christ is the true Son who perfectly keeps Torah law, who is a faithful covenant child all the days of his life. And at the end of his life, he does not receive the blessings of obedience. He receives the curse. Do you remember what the curse of of disobeying the law is? Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul in Galatians says that's talking about the cross of Jesus Christ so that Jesus died the death that Israel should have died. And here is the gospel. When you believe that, when you are united to Christ by faith, you receive His righteousness, His reward, and He receives our penalty, our curse. So that by faith, we are restored as sons of God. (laughs) Through the Holy Spirit, Romans 8.15, by the Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. You see, God is not just Father. He is Abba, Father, which is the way a little child speaks to his daddy so that we are restored to this intimate relationship once again. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Let me close with this final meditation. The fundamental reason why we don't obey God. It's the reason why you don't obey God. It's the reason why I don't obey God. It's because we don't know if God really loves us. We're not sure that we can trust him. How do we know that if we obey God about money, about sex, that he will protect us and he will provide for us? Here's the answer. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All good things are are ours in Christ and no good thing does he withhold if only we will obey him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Abba Father, when we examine our lives, when we are honest with ourselves, we see that we do not live as sons. We live like we are orphans. We live these impoverished lives spiritually, morally, relationally. We're so busy trying to survive as orphans in a cold and pitiless world that we forget we are heirs of the king of the universe. We are infinitely rich in Christ. We are princes. We are princesses of heaven. Lord, let this not just be some abstract future idea, but let it be a present power that we experience now. Remind us all that we are sons of God, that we are the bride of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.